Good morning, everybody. Let me uh, add my welcome to Scott's. It's wonderful to have you with us on this Remembrance Sunday. We're beginning a, a new series, studying a new book of God's Word this morning as a church family. So I hope you will be able to reach for a Bible and turn with me to page 995, if it's one of our Bibles, to Timothy, as you'll see on the screen and on the service sheet, this great letter that Paul wrote to teach uh, the church and its leaders about the nature of church life and ministry. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then I'm going to read the first few verses to us. And so, Almighty God, on a day when we remember the courage and sacrifice of millions, we praise you once again for the great sacrifice of the Lord Jesus himself. We thank you that through him we can have the promise of life. Uh, thank you that we can know you uh, in this life and be certain of receiving the crown of life in the age to come if we've trusted in your son, the Lord Jesus. And thank you that we can offer a message of life to our world so uh, torn and broken by man's inhumanity to man, and by death and war. We pray then that you would be with us this morning, that you would focus our hearts and minds upon you, and upon the privilege of knowing you, and on the life that we can have in you, and that you would strengthen us individually and as a church to live the life of faith in service of you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read to us then from 2 Timothy chapter 1 and starting at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. It would be great if uh, you could keep that passage of the Bible open in front of you. There's also an outline of where we're going to go on the back of the notice sheet that was inside the song sheet when you came in. And the place that I want us to start, maybe counterintuitively on a day when we remember so many acts of great courage and self-sacrifice, is that little word in the last sentence I read, verse 7, a uh, little word, fear, that's going to take us, I think, to the heart of what's going on in this letter. I think you can better translate that fear as moral cowardice. And uh, this is how my dictionary defines that uh, term. 
Moral cowardice, when taking a principled stand is avoided because of its risks, especially the disapproval or hostility of others. Moral cowardice. We could think about it on many levels, on a political level. We could think about it in uh, many aspects of our national life. But just Christianly, I suspect that um, everyone who follows the Lord Jesus has faced times when we've at least been tempted by that sort of fear, that sort of moral cowardice, the reluctance to take a principled stand because of its risks, especially the disapproval or hostility of others. Uh, Every year, Open Doors produces a watch list that details the number of Christians around the world who face what they term as high levels of discrimination and persecution for their faith. Uh, The figure last year stood at 360 million of our brothers and sisters around the world. We don't face those levels of hostility in the UK, but we can all think of times when I'm sure we've wanted to blend into the background like a chameleon because we feared what might happen if we stood apart from the crowd or we spoke up for the Lord Jesus. It happens to me far too often. Do you know, every time uh, something as simple as having the opportunity to invite a friend along to church comes, maybe you're wreath-making for you, maybe a carol service, it is a battle, embarrassingly, to find the moral courage to say something as simple as, hey, we've got an event going on at church that I think you'd really like. Would you like to come? How can that be an embarrassing thing to say? Or if you've got a a Christian friend who's making a habit of disobeying God's word and you want to try and come alongside them, then you find that there is a, a pain barrier that you need to cross if you want gently to speak the truth in love to them. As I say, this issue of moral cowardice is one of the big issues in 2 Timothy. Uh, Almost the entire church of which Timothy was the leader had already chucked in the the towel, um, spiritually speaking. They were lacking the courage to stand firm for Christ. And Paul's writing to Timothy at a time in his life when he is at least tempted to do the same. Uh, And Paul had one shot, uh, three pages in which to encourage and instruct his young friend to stay in the battle, to finish the Christian race. And that's what we're reading over the next few months together as we dive in this morning. We've got three points. You'll see them on the sheet. And the first is that this was a a letter to a church in crisis. Um, This is really just background to the letter, this first point. Surprise number one this morning, though, is that even when a church has been blessed by God in astonishing ways, it can still go off the rails in double-quick time. The church in question was in Ephesus. The book of Acts tells us of the remarkable way that it was planted. You might know the story if you've read of it. Uh, One preacher describes Ephesus as being like New York for shopping and Edinburgh for regional government. It was this sort of center of political and commercial power. And spiritually, it was dominated by one one of the ancient wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis. And then one day, the Apostle Paul turns up in town and starts preaching about life that can be found in Jesus. Uh, The book of Acts says that within two years from that day, the whole, all of the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia 
heard the word of the Lord. That's a pretty big deal. Ephesus, we think, town of 300,000, obviously the province of Asia, much bigger than that. Everyone heard the Paul preach. And as all heard, many believed. So many say that when um, they, some of them had a, a bonfire to burn all of the magic scrolls that had meant so much to them before they were Christian. And the, the value of the burnt scrolls, we're told, was 50,000 drachma in uh, modern money. That's about three million quid. Uh, there were businessmen in Ephesus who made their living out of selling ornaments in the temple of Artemis. And uh, they were so worried about the impact on their business of all of the people becoming Christians that they actually rioted in the streets. I was trying to think of the equivalent. Can you imagine all the, all the drug pushers, all the pimps, all the loan sharks of Glasgow rioting in the streets because revival was putting them out of business? Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? Uh, the church that grew was one of Paul's favorite churches. He spent more time there than anywhere else. It was the strategic center for his efforts to plant churches all over the region. So mid-50s AD, this church was a, a beacon of hope, really, of everything that the gospel could achieve in the world. It was a picture of strength, vitality, success. Now we're less than 10 years later, and even with Timothy, Paul's protege, now overseeing it, the church has suffered a, a desperate collapse, complete reversal. Um, verse 15 of chapter 1, we'll get to it next week, but if you glance at it, it gives us a flavor. Paul says, you're aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are these two Phygelus and Hermogenes. Um, even if that's a deliberate exaggeration, it's still incredible we're talking about one of the best-taught churches in history, planted and tended by the Apostle Paul himself. In no time at all, they've now abandoned him. How come? The letter hints at two causes. One is persecution outside of the church. Um, chapter 3 says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And it, it seems that the church was feeling some of the heat of that. Uh, Paul himself had been put in prison for his preaching, and that hostility was spreading to those who'd worked with Paul or those who believed his message. And as that pressure ramped up, so this large case of moral cowardice started to spread like a fungus through the church. Even Phygelus and Hermogenes had turned away. We don't know much about them at all, but it seems if they're being named like that, they were the last people on earth you would expect to chuck in the towel. Make it worse, there's persecution from the outside. At the same time as that, a bunch of false teachers started to infect the church from within it as well. Paul had predicted in Acts 20 that would happen, and sure enough, it was. Preachers telling itching cowardly ears, just what they wanted to hear, and thereby, we're told, upsetting the faith of some. So there's the depth of crisis that there was in Ephesus. I don't know what you make of the state of the church in our own land today. I suspect it's not quite that dire, but for our mainline denominations, at least, prospects are, are bleak. Since 2000, the number of 
people are attending church regularly in the UK has dropped by about 2 million. Uh, in Scotland, we're told 39% of churches have no one under the age of 11 in them. 50% of churches have no teenagers in them. One preacher said those, churches don't, those numbers don't suggest a church in decline. They reveal a church that is dying. Uh, we know it's not quite as bleak as the headline figures suggest because the, the number of people attending Bible-believing and teaching churches in that time has actually grown and continues to grow. But we definitely live in a land in which we all feel the pain and challenge. Uh, a land in which many who claim to speak for Jesus, houses of bishops for one, deny his word, and in which there is growing hostility to the beliefs that Christians have cherished for 2,000 years. It's into a not dissimilar situation to our own then that Paul is writing. And he's uh, reminding Timothy of his God-given ministry, and he's urging him to run the race that God had set before him. What does that to do with us? You'll see that the letter is addressed personally to Timothy, verse 2, to Timothy, my beloved child. But Paul's hope was very much that anyone who was left in the church would be reading it over Timothy's shoulder. If you flick on to the end of the letter, you'll see the, very, the last few words of it. Grace be with you. In other translations, grace be with you all. And uh, the footnote will tell you that the you there is plural because it's not just Timothy as, the solo, as a solo church leader or even just the elders who need to hear this message. It's any and every Christian who needs, as we'll see, to understand. Here's a little experiment to show why that's so. Um, I was thinking of asking you to raise a hand, but I, it's just so unseemly. So we won't do that. But can you get as far as raising a mental hand if I ask you to do that? It won't make it as effective when I ask you to look around at what everyone else is doing. But we'll, we'll go with that anyway. Could you raise a mental hand if you've ever been in a church that was choosing a new minister? Or if you've ever been asked to lead a Bible study group or to teach in a Sunday school, or if you've ever been in a conversation with someone who was either praising or criticizing a minister for the work that they were doing, or if you've ever had to move to a new town and look for a new church. I think if we were the kind of people that put our hands in the air for these kind of surveys, we would see that every single one of us has a hand up. And that is why we all need this definitive portrait of the true Christian servant that we find in 2 Timothy. But if our first point was about a church in crisis, our second is about Timothy himself. I'm calling him a minister at a crossroads as we continue to dive into the, the letter. Surprise number two this morning is that just as it's possible for really well-taught churches to go off the rails, so also it's possible for brilliantly gifted and well-trained ministers to want to chuck in the towel too. Uh, Timothy is, I think, one of the most misunderstood men in the New Testament. Uh, books routinely refer to him as timid Timothy, and they give the impression that he was a bit of a wimp who was lacking the stomach for a fight. I want us to see that that's not who he was at all. 
Uh, verse 5 reminds us of Timothy's family. His mum Eunice was Jewish by birth but believed in Jesus. Um, so did his granny Lois. His dad, we know, was a Gentile, probably not a Christian. Uh, but his mum taught him the scriptures from his earliest days. And over time, his faith, uh, her faith, I should say, became his own. I know that would be an encouragement to some. And verse 5 says that Paul was convinced of the sincerity of Timothy's faith. Literally, that word is, is without hypocrisy. He was a guy who was unwavering in his commitment to Christ. When Paul first arrived in Timothy's hometown back in Acts, he discovered that um, all of the believers in Lystra and Iconium spoke well of Timothy. And so it was no surprise when Paul decided to take Timothy along as his co-worker on his missionary travels. Soon enough, uh, Timothy was pretty much Paul's right-hand man. Paul was training him in gospel ministry. He was praying for him. He was entrusting him with uh, serious gospel responsibility. And you can see how much he loved him. Just look at verse 4. I remember your tears. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. And when Paul sent Timothy to Thessalonica to encourage the church there, he describes him as his brother and as God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. When the situation in Corinth became so messy that Paul had to send in a, a troubleshooter, again, Timothy got the job. Timothy ended up co-writing seven of our, the letters in our New Testament. This is what Paul says about him in Philippians. I've no one like Timothy. Everyone else seeks their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. So if there is any danger of a picture in your head of Timothy as some wet behind the ears wimp who lacks the stomach for a fight, we've got to get rid of it. Here is one of the most talented, trained, and trusted gospel workers of his generation. Paul loved him. He thought of him as a son prayed constantly for him, relied on him professionally. And yet, things had got so bad in Ephesus that even Timothy was at a crossroads. He'd made a great start in the Christian life. He'd made a great start in ministry. But Paul felt the need to write to him and to encourage him to continue, to keep going. Would he buckle, like so many others seem to be doing? Or would he finish the race? The temptation confronting him was this moral cowardice, the fear of verse 7. I take it the reason that Paul has to say to Timothy, God did not give us a spirit of fear, of moral cowardice, was that that was the precisely the issue that Timothy was having to battle and confront when he got out of bed in the morning. It's the temptation that we all face every day, the temptation to avoid taking a principled stand for Jesus Christ because of the risks that are associated with it and because we think our life might be slightly easier if we didn't. 
Um, Some preachers go so far as to suggest that Timothy had already taken a knee, that he'd stumbled, that he was in a desperate situation and that this letter is something of a rescue operation to try and get him back on track. I think that's to overstate it. But I'm content saying that he's at a crossroads. How is he going to handle these twin pressures of persecution from outside the church and heresy within it, especially when his mentor Paul steps off the stage. He's about to die. And so the spotlight falls even more on Timothy. Will he keep fighting the good fight? We'll see as we go on in the letter. But one lesson for us is that gospel ministry is so difficult that there are times when even the most gifted and the best trained gospel workers in a whole region will be tempted to chuck it in. The application of that reality depends a bit on who we are. Uh, Some here obviously are already serving God full-time in paid gospel ministry. Some of you I know are hoping that that might be what God has for you in the future. The the message of 2 Timothy will come to to that group in a pretty straight line over the next couple of months. What God said to Timothy then directly is what God is saying to you directly today. And that is that for all of the very great joy and privilege, which should never be underestimated, it is to be set aside to teach God's word to others, to lead his people. The ministry of the gospel is really, really hard. And if even Timothy had to battle the temptation to give up or at least to tone down his commitment to Christ, if he had a temptation to stand apart from Paul the Apostle in one way or another, I take it you don't think that you will be immune or that I will be immune from that pressure. I heard a talk by a man widely regarded as one of the the greatest British church leaders of the 20th century. And in it, he spoke very movingly of times in his own ministry when he, he faced a pressure that was so great that he said he woke up every day with a, a tight, sickening feeling in his stomach. And in a strange way, as surprised as I was to hear that man say that, I was so encouraged because I know that I've certainly been there too. If you do this kind of work, I promise it will be your turn soon enough. The majority, though, won't ever engage in the full-time work of the gospel, so the application doesn't come in quite such a straight line to you, but God still wants you to register that no matter how gifted and well-trained they are, there will still be times when your minister, when your women's worker, when your friends on the MT scheme, when people you know who are serving the Lord overseas will be tempted to tone down their service of Christ for the sake of an easier life. And you you might think, well, hang on, don't we pay them? Shouldn't, Shouldn't they be immune from this kind of danger? And maybe we should. But no one ever fully outgrows the temptation to fear, to moral cowardice. And that realization should shape the way that you pray for your friends in those situations, your leaders. It should shape the way you support them. 
Uh, when you're talking to people on our team, please don't take for, for granted that they're reading their Bible and praying and pressing on in godliness and that they're still working hard to understand and teach God's Word because even the best of them might not be faring as well on the inside as they seem to be on the outside. And Paul wanted the whole church in Ephesus to know because the whole church has a role in keeping the minister and the ministry of the church on track. That's not a big plea for help. It's not me saying that I know that there's a particular crisis going on among our team. I really don't. I'm telling you, that's everyday reality in every church you'll ever be a part of. There's one more strand of application for us here as well. Uh, this is one, uh, if I may suggest it, even some of the best books on 2 Timothy miss, uh, because what God says here about Timothy's full-time church leader, capital M type ministry, also applies to the, if I can call it this, the little M ministry that God gives to every single one of his children at our conversion. You know, we often say that every Christian is not just a disciple of the Lord Jesus, but a disciple maker for the Lord Jesus. We all have a, a role to play. And so whether we're sharing the good news of Jesus with friends outside of the church, or we're speaking the truth in love to members of our church family in a life group or in some other context, or we're bringing up our children for Christ, whatever we're doing, it's all ministry of God's Word in that sense. And it is typical and normal for us to be tempted to moral cowardice, to fear in our own ministry, whatever it is. In many ways, I think you will find that as a Christian, certainly my experience, you, you live at the sort of crossroads daily that Timothy was at as Paul wrote to him. There'll be times when the pressure is felt more keenly than others. There'll be particular seasons, but you'll never be far from a crossroads. Today, will I cross the pain line for Christ? Will I persevere in his service? Or will I take a slightly easier path? It's daunting, isn't it? Which is why we need the spirit of power, our third and final point here. Finally, we reach the big appeal of this introduction to the letter, let me read from verse six. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. This reason, the reason, Timothy's heritage and track record. Remember your mum, says Paul. Remember your gran. Remember how real their faith was. Think what they would think if you attempted to sell out. But more than that, I know you, Timothy, it's not just their faith, this is your faith. You are a true man of God. I know that, you know that. So let, remind, let me remind you to keep going. To fan into flame the gift that God has put in you. That is the gift in his case to preach and teach God's word to others. He's gifted you. So fan it into flame. If you've ever had or had to attend an, uh, an open fire, you'll find Paul's image really intuitive. You light the fire, it's blazing away very happily. You've got it going. Uh, you head into the other room for dinner maybe. By the time you come back, it's burning low. It hasn't gone out yet, but it needs to be rekindled. It's a very intuitive image. 
Because you don't have to do anything if you want the fire to go out. That's the default for what happens if you neglect to stoke its flames. And Paul is saying, Timothy, my dear son, ministry is really tough. And you're in a really difficult situation. And therefore, you're going to need to keep working really hard to fan God's gift into flame. In his first letter to Timothy, Paul said, devote yourself to these things. Practice them. Immerse yourself in them. Persist in doing this. And now he says, keep tending the fire. That is, don't presume that just because you've had good training and godly role models in the past, that you're guaranteed to remain faithful in the future. Uh, the tense of the appeals in the present, this isn't something you do once and then it's done. It's something you've got to keep doing every day. And uh, what do you reckon to this? I, I, my hunch is that if someone has been in ministry for 10 years or more, my hunch would be you only have to hear them preach a couple of times before you know whether they're continuing to give their best energy after all these years to the preaching of God's word. Because you can have great gifts at the beginning and great training, but if you neglect them, then the fire will burn low. And so here comes the big appeal of the whole letter. Here is Paul. He's finished his race. He'll tell us he's about to die. He's done his bit. His baton's being handed on to Timothy. What of him? Really good start. How will he finish? And what of us? What of our church? What of me? Wonderfully, though, Paul doesn't end with the appeal. That would just be depressing. He ends with a promise of God's help. Verse 7, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. So the question is, is God the Holy Spirit a fearful coward? Answer, of course not. He's the spirit of power. And so as Timothy, the worker, as the Christian, as the church, prays, as we depend upon the Spirit's power, he gives us all of the courage we need to keep serving God, even if it means, as we'll see, suffering for the work of the gospel. So we're to remember who the Spirit is. This is the same Spirit who filled and empowered Jesus. This is the Spirit who enabled Paul to fight the good fight and finish his race. This is the Spirit who has empowered every single gospel worker anywhere in the world with anything that they've endured and remained faithful for the last 2,000 years. And every Christian has all of the divine power of God the Holy Spirit at work within us. And as we keep in step with him, so he enables us to fan into flame the gift of God and to stay faithful. Not just in teaching, but did you see spirit of love in loving people as we should. Self-control, living the godly life that we should, so important as we'll see in 2 Timothy. Contained within this appeal then is an invitation 
I wonder what you'll do with it. It's an invitation to abandon any effort that we might want to make to keep going in our own strength and instead to lean into the infinite resources of God the Holy Spirit instead. Uh, Oswald Chambers captured it really well. He said, um, God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance upon them. All through history, God has chosen, he said, and used nobodies because their unusual dependence upon him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities and resources. Uh, many of us are nobodies. Some of you are somebodies. Here's an invitation to abandon reliance upon self and cast it fully upon God. There is a great, a great balance then to this third point. The appeal, keep going. Fan your gift into flame. It's tough. You've got to keep at it. But do it in the power of the Spirit who is at work within you. Let me end by reminding us why it all matters. Um, we'll see more of this next week. But there's a, a few words in verse 1 that point beyond themselves to the reason that our world so desperately needs this unashamed ministry of the gospel today. And if you sit sitting there thinking, well, this is fine, but what's it, why does it really matter? Do you see those words in, in verse 1 there? According to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. If ministry is this hard, why bother doing it? Why bother supporting it? Why bother having a series in a church encouraging you to understand it and get behind it? The answer is that there is only one place in the whole world uh, where human beings like us, sinful human beings who have turned away from God, can access the life of God that is in Christ Jesus. He's speaking of, of true, eternal life, lived in a relationship with God now, and the promise of the crown of life, as he calls it, in his glorious new creation when we die. There's only one place in the whole world where true life can be accessed, the life that is in Jesus, and it is in the word of the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross in love for sinners like us, his one perfect sacrifice that means we can be forgiven and washed clean and brought into his family and guaranteed a place in his new creation. So if I choose the path of moral cowardice, what I would in effect be saying is that my own comfort in this life is a higher priority than giving other people the chance to share in the life of Jesus now and in the next. 
That's what the choice of the coward is. My comfort now matters more than others having eternal life, or at least the chance of it. There is no doubt then that fighting the good fight, keeping the faith, running the race, all the way to the finish line is really hard, it's really painful. 2 Timothy will remind us of that quite repetitively in the weeks to come. Paul knew that. He'd felt it, he'd lived it. He was in prison, waiting to die. Timothy was feeling it too. The church in Ephesus, as few as were left, were feeling it as well. Uh, We know it too. Leaders within our churches abandon the truth and the world opposes it. That's the world of 2 Timothy. But God has put his spirit of power inside us. And this work, the work of the gospel, matters eternally. So we're to read 2 Timothy, asking God to enable us, if you've got them, to fan into flame any gifts that he's given to you so that you are faithful in teaching others and that all of us can play our part in supporting and praying for those who have them and in doing our own ministry of disciple-making such as God has given to us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we want to thank and praise you for the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. We know it is only found in the word of the gospel, the good news of Jesus himself. And so we pray that you would keep us focused upon him, that you would make us very mindful of him as a church over these next couple of months as we read to Timothy. We pray that you might speak to us powerfully through the letter and that you might strengthen us by the power of the Spirit who is at work within us, a spirit not of fear but of power and of love and of self-control so that we might be the the people that you would like us to be. We might be the church that you would like us to be. And so that we might not give in to this fear. We might not choose an easy life, but keep running the race right to the end. And we pray it in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Well, let's close our time by dedicating ourselves to God once again in the words of this lovely